Welcome to EDS at Union Now. This episode is called Knowledge and Nourishment, Reflecting on the Election, and was recorded in the aftermath of the 2020 presidential election. It includes appearances of President Serene Jones, Vice President Fred Davey, Dean Pamela Cooper-White, and EDS at Union Dean Kelly Brown Douglas, with a prayer offered by Sandra Montes. Espíritu, Creator, Divine Guía, we are tired, we are weary, we are divided. We know there is much work yet to be done, and the work ahead feels heavy and seems unending. Help us hold on to hope. May our faith help us take one more step, even when the path seems uncertain and dark. May our faith help us trust and take courage, even when everything seems lost. You are our shelter. You are our strength. You are our hope. Guide us towards the light of your unending peace. Gather us into your love. Protect us from all danger. Equip us as we work for the common good. Remind us who we are and especially who you are. Renew us as we rest in you. Amen. Thank you, Sandra. Um, so a few words to open our conversation. Um, as I uh, watched the returns last night come in, I was uh, quickly slapped in the face um, with the fact that I had once again fallen prey to a fantasy world um, in which um, my desires and the desires of justice and love uh, simply wash over us and bring us to a new place. Um, clearly that has not happened in this election. And even if Biden, Harris pull it out, we are still a nation deeply divided. And I find myself disturbed, confused, but even more determined to address and to march into the fray of the division that is America. It was shocking to me to see state after state, the number of votes that came in to support a man who is unambiguously a warmonger, a bigot, whose mental stability is seriously in question, a man who doesn't even pause when it comes to denigration and scapegoating a man who has only his own self-interest at stake and who has cost our nation already hundreds of thousands of lives and more are certain to come. A dangerous man. And state after state showed us that this person is still able, able to draw the support of millions and millions of people. So we have a lot of work to do in the days ahead I wanna to speak to you just for a minute theologically, because I think that in moments like this, we have to step back 
and think about what it means to be a community at union that dwells in the realm of the theological and the spiritual and thinks about theological leadership. Albert Speer, who was the ideological constructor of Hitler's Nazi Germany, wrote his memoir while he was in prison. And in it, he reflected that what allowed the Nazis to rise to power was a combination of romanticism and technology. Yesterday, we saw how deeply embedded in the DNA of this nation are two profound fantasies. One is the fantasy of white supremacy, which is deeply wedded to a story about what it means to be Christian. And two, we saw play out a romanticism about a yearning for a world that is patriarchal, a world in which men, strong men, still hold power. We saw those played out right before our eyes. And both of those romantic visions that run around inside our unconscious minds and bodies are deeply embedded in people's worldviews and religious sensibilities. And the work ahead for us at Union and in religious communities across this country is to engage in protest in the streets, but also to engage in existential and theological protest and to continue the hard work of shifting these romantic and distorted views of what it means to be a human being anchored as they are in faith traditions. The second thing he mentioned was technology. And we see in this election, the power of technology to distort vision, to propagate lies. And that is also a part of the work ahead in terms of challenging the technologies of this nation and how they allow hatred to grow. So the work ahead of us is mighty, but I'll say this in closing, that as a person of faith, I am in this always hoping to win for the sake of justice and goodness, but I'm not in it only to win, I'm in it because of justice and goodness. And I am moving forward with hope, with determination, and I am facing into the fray ahead of us in prayer and in action that this nation has a chance at a better future always, always holding before me those most marginal, those who are oppressed, those who are poor, those who cannot vote, and those who haven't. Those are the people we lift up this morning. Fred? Thank you, Serene. Um, and thank you, Sandra, for your uh, prayer as well. Um, so I've, I've had, the, I'm gonna call it the good fortune of being able to work uh, closely with the faith aspect of the Biden-Harris campaign um, and to really engage with uh, a good deal of uh, vote education, uh, vote outreach, and then uh, get out the vote efforts. Uh, and particularly yes, the last three days being uh, in Philadelphia, uh, working with uh, the Biden-Harris folks there uh, to, um, to do get out the vote work. 
So let me just say a, th- a few things, and they're sort of um, uh, random, but they all cohere around what, you know, the election. Um, so first off, I think the one thing we should, should acknowledge is that participation was extremely high. Um, actually, uh, Joe Biden is going to get, I think, about 5 million more votes than Hillary Clinton did and then win the popular vote by um, a little over 2 million which is less than what she won by, but he has more votes than she had. Uh, uh, but Donald Trump got uh, about 3 million more votes than he got in the last election. So Americans did participate uh, in, this, in this process, in this electoral process. The, the polls were all, particularly in the swing states, were all within the margin of error. But I think what happens is that the press looks for a story um, and the story is that, well, there's the potential for a Biden-Harris sweep. Um, and, and they run with it. And, um, and we get, myself included, we get pulled in, even though if you really looked at the polls, uh, they really did show that uh, these ra- the race was really tight in the swing states, uh, even where, such as Wisconsin, where... Um, I think uh, Biden-Harris had probably a eight to 10 point lead. There was a big margin of error there, um, which accounts for the closeness of, of what's happened um, uh, over last night. There were clear efforts on the part of uh, Republicans to make inroads into black and brown communities. Um, evangelical Christians in Florida broke heavily for Donald Trump much more heavily than they did uh, in 16. Uh, and, uh, but uh, um, they increased that base. Having said that, um, I just heard from a briefing from the campaign where they said uh, um, Biden uh, got the same uh, percentage of, uh, got the same number of evangelicals. There were just a higher number of evangelical Christians particularly Latino evangelicals, Christians participating in South Florida, uh, and the Republicans were able to uh, woo them and pull them into to their camp. They also uh, went uh, heavily after black and brown men, uh, particularly in the urban areas of the swing states. Uh, I experienced a good bit of both uh, the responses from the evangelical Christian community and black and brown uh, uh, men uh, in the canvassing that I did yesterday in uh, North Philly, um, uh, there were surprisingly number of people uh, who um, who said that they could not uh, support the Biden Harris ticket um, and were supporting um, you know, were supporting uh, Trump Pence. Now, we should not expect um, there to be a monolith monolith uh, uh, within these communities when it comes to their uh, political orientations. Um, the communities are, are very, very diverse. Um, having said that, there is a cognitive dissonance that happens uh, when you see uh, working class and poor uh, people of color uh, line up behind Donald Trump. And, and maybe we can talk a little bit about uh, sort of what some of that is about a, a little bit later. Uh, I'll just say also that the Republicans had a huge ground game. I think the Democrats had high contact with um, with voters, uh, 
but the Republicans basically ignored the protocols uh, for the coronavirus uh, and ran a huge uh, sort of in-person um, uh, high-touch uh, ground game uh, to turn out um, a lot of the president's base who in the past had, had not voted. I think they had something like 2 million uh, on-the-ground volunteers nationwide. That said, uh, in my briefing with the campaign, uh, Jen O'Malley Daly and uh, others, um, uh, just a few minutes ago, uh, they state that, the, that Vice President Biden and Senator Harris have won this race. Um, Vice President Biden will address the nation this afternoon, uh, where I think he's going to say he's run this, won the race. He's going to lay out why he's won it. Uh, I think there'll be focus on Arizona, Nevada, and Michigan uh, for them to say why they have believed they have won those states and that it will hold. Um, and um, and um, and and I think they'll talk about Pennsylvania, uh, which should be called maybe late tomorrow. Uh, there are about a million and a half votes still to be counted. And even though uh, President Trump, Donald Trump has a 600,000 vote lead, now most of the votes that will be counted uh, that are outstanding are mail-in or dropped off ballots, mainly from the Philadelphia area and Philadelphia County area. And they're confident that they'll more than make up that distance. Um, Georgia and North Carolina, according to the campaign, are still in play. Uh, and they strongly, I think, believe that they will prevail in Georgia, uh, if not North Carolina as well. Now, there will be court challenges, no doubt. The president has already said that he won and now he's being cheated out of the race and he wanted to go straight to the Supreme Court. I think he probably was advised by some of his staff that's not possible, that's not the way the system works, that they would have to file uh, a, a, I guess, a federal claim in the appropriate federal court to get it started and then it would work its way up perhaps to, uh, to the Supreme Court. Um, now, having said all of that, I, um, I, I think that we need to more deeply understand how so many uh, people really could not just support, but enthusiastically rally behind uh, a man in administration who has watched a quarter million people die uh, on, his, on his watch um, who has caged uh, children, just to name uh, two of the atrocities, um, uh, who holds rallies where it's estimated that at least 700 at Stanford University did a study and said at least 700 COVID deaths can be directly related to the Trump campaign rallies. Um, there's, something, there's something that's being missed here. Uh, I, and I think we could talk about race uh, and the fear of the country becoming majority-minority, where uh, white people are as much of a minority as anyone else. Um, I think we can talk about the lack of enthusiasm on the Democratic side because of ongoing poverty uh, and the inability of people to flourish and a system that's unresponsive to that. Uh, but there's more to come on all of this, uh, and I'll, I'll start with that, and I'll be interested in the discussion that follows. Fred, thank you so much for that. And with the background and your comments, you look like our own Union Theological Seminary anchor in New York City. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. 
but I, I feel like an anchor, but not that tight. Yes. <laughs> Heavy and weighted today. No, but th but thank you for that data and for the framing of the of the issues. Sure. Um, so Kelly. Yes. Thank thank you, uh, Serene, and thank you all for this conversation. Thank you, uh, Fred. It was it's a great segue. Uh, that there is something more going on uh, than this. We have heard over and over uh, that the soul of our nation is at stake. And I think that we have heard that so often that we have allowed it to sort of move by us uh, without sitting in that just for a moment. This is not the first time that the soul of our nation has been at stake. I think that when we are talking about, of course, the soul of our nation, we're talking about that imperceptible but palpable part of ourselves that transcends us and calls us toward our more transcendent self, our better vision of ourself, that calls us toward this sense of what I often like to speak of as uh, the just future that God promises us all. It calls us toward our vision uh, for ourselves to be that nation uh, of justice and liberty at all, for all rather. Yet the soul of this nation has been held captive to a culture of sin. The original sin, which of course is the foundation of this country upon which this country was built, white supremacy. To be held to a culture of sin that is white supremacy is what original sin is all about, being held captive. This country has been held captive to this culture of sin for since its inception, because we have never fully lived in to our better angels, to the vision, if you will, of our soul. The miracle is, is that we have had that vision, right? We've had that vision so that our soul has sort of emerged, allowing us to have that vision, even in as much as it was corrupted right away and held captive right away by the culture of sin that we uh, understand as white supremacy. Until we began to understand the depth of that, until we began to really excavate that sin and understand the realities of that sin, well, we will continue continually find ourselves in these moments. I call this our 21st century version of a civil war. Because in fact, any time in which you find, as we see this, this, this sin that is white supremacy really reaching its apex, it is inevitable that it is going to come into war with this greater vision. And so that's what we see. It's as if that the genie has uh, been let out of the bottle again, right? But it's always there. That's what, that's what original sin is all about. You gotta, you gotta go to the heart of it. You've gotta understand it. And so, so that's there. This is what we see. It's about more than a particular person. It's about more than partisanship. It's about more than politics. 
it is about our country not being able to reconcile itself to its very soul, right? And so we have this 21st century version of a civil war. We had it, obviously, uh, during the time of Abraham Lincoln. Perhaps the difference with Lincoln was not the fact that he believed really that all people were created equal because he didn't believe that in relationship to those of us blessed with any grace, but he did believe in the higher vision of the nation. He did believe in the, the nation being united. He believed that slavery, he called that slavery a sin. What he understood, perhaps he didn't understand the original sin out of which slavery emerged, but he understood that it was a product of this culture of sin. So here we are in our 21st century version of the Civil War, well, where white supremacy, this sin is rearing its head and holding our nation captive. And so that the lost cause, if you will, is standing uh, its ground. So what do we do? I think that this is a moment that one is a challenge, a call, and perhaps as well an indictment on the faith community because we have allowed this sin to fester, to nurture, to prosper on our watch. <laughs> so we, so it's an indictment. Uh, to, and so we are called now to, at a time that it's more significant than ever, we are called to have a moral voice and perhaps most importantly, to have moral courage. The moral, so, the soul of our country has been corrupted. And so it is left to faith leaders. And this, this is our call. We, the fact that we call ourselves people of faith means that we are not accountable to the way things are. We are not accountable to the realities of humanity, to the earth. We are accountable to that more just future, which our soul links us to and calls us to. And so it seems to me that this is our challenge. This is our call, even as it has been our indictment. We need to claim our moral voice. We need to claim moral courage. We need to provide the kind of moral leadership that indeed allows us to live again into our very humanity. That, it seems to me, is the call of our soul. And we can talk more about that. But I do think, Fred, that it is about much more than what meets the eye. Uh, it has been for a long time. And it's not about a person. It's not about a party. It's not about partisan politics. It's about who we want to be as a nation and a country, as a people. It's about reclaiming our, the vision of our soul and indeed living into our soul. Serene, you're on mute. So, yeah, I think uh, the host has to unmute it. Okay, Kelly, thank you for that. Um, yes, it is about the soul of a nation and our indictment. Um, so, um, Pam, <laughs> Inker White, um, share some words with us and um, what are you seeing? Well, 
I myself am in a place of, um, of grief this morning, I have to say, and it makes it hard to speak. Um, and I so resonate with everything that's already been said. And I think that it's inspiring to listen to what Kelly calls us to do um, in the name of our faith, um, the repentance that we need to do and the path that we need to be Again, putting our feet on, um, and I, I'm preparing a sermon for Sunday at the cathedral and noting that um, the Hebrew Bible reading for this week is from Amos, and it seems so fitting. Um, it starts with, thus says the Lord, the God of hosts, the Lord, alas for you who desire the day of the Lord, why do you want the day of the Lord? It is darkness, not light, as if someone fled from a lion and was met by a bear, or went into the house and rested a hand against the wall and was bitten by a snake. And the passage ends, but let justice roll down like waters and righteousness, righteousness like an ever-flowing stream. Um, we are in a time, I think, where prophecy is needed. The words of the prophets may speak volumes to us um, about the ways that we still need to speak against the culture that has allowed such a fascist leader to take control of this country and its imagination. Um, it threw me back to work that I've done over many years with battered women, where often in court cases, um, it's often said that the perpetrator lies better than the victim can tell the truth. And I think in this country, the devil has lied better than angels can tell the truth. And I think one of the things that has astonished me the most is that people who should be capable of critical thinking still can swallow a whole tissue of lies. This whole campaign of Trump has been founded on an entire edifice of lies. And to me, that is demonic. We live part-time in Pennsylvania, in central Pennsylvania, surrounded by houses with Trump lawn signs on them. And these are the good people who marinate daily in Fox News and begin to believe those lies because they are amplified over and over and over in an echo chamber that doesn't let in any light or air. So how do we speak not only to the people who agree with us, but what can we do differently to speak to those who are so convinced that the lies are truth? How do we penetrate the racism, the xenophobia, the sexism that puts a Supreme Court justice in place through the image of a supermom, appealing to women's femininity and traditional values in order to ensure that a strong man president can be put back in the White House. What does this say about the convoluted way in which justice and truth get twisted? And so I think outrage is appropriate. I think prophetic speech, I hope all of you who are clergy will have strong things to say from our pulpits on Sunday. But I think also from the perspective of someone who teaches spiritual care, I also want to say we may need to take a breath. 
before we hit the streets again, before we pound the pulpit again, because there is grief and dismay among all of us right now. And we need to hold each other up through the grief, no judgment. Those who are ready to, to get out and protest immediately, those who need a moment to take a breath, to grieve, to pray, we are all in this together and we need to support each other in the way that we respond to this. Justice is the end goal, but it's a long road ahead of us. And we've been shown again how hard this work is and how long it takes, how long, oh Lord. So I'm gonna stop there, but just to say, there will be diversity among us in our responses. Let's hold one another in care even as we hold one another accountable to do the work of justice. Thank you, Pam. Thank you. Thank you everyone for your comments. And um, I wanna encourage anyone who is, has joined us on Facebook or Zoom um, to please send comments and questions. Um, we are um, happy to entertain questions, um, but I wanna ask, um, uh, the four of us gathered. Um, as you watch the returns come in, and we have so much demographic um, analysis yet to do to see uh, what was actually happening on the ground and, and where votes were coming from. But um, can you uh, talk to the places where you were most surprised? to see um, the returns that were coming in. Not necessarily the state, but um, the electorate. Um, where, where were you feeling the, oh my God, moments um, the most acutely? Fred, I know you were on the ground all day yesterday in Pennsylvania, um, um, canvassing, um, uh, maybe you could start us off by saying, you know, where were, did you have any of those sort of shock moments? Um, sure. I mean, I, I had heard that, um, and as I mentioned, that um, the uh, campaign, the Trump campaign was targeting black and brown men, particularly. Um, and, um, but when you actually experience it, uh, and, and then, just have a conversation, which is what I tried to do. There were, in one case, four young men on one street corner uh, in North Philly. Um, they were three Latinos and one African-American, uh, one, um, uh, uh, I assume, black, uh, black uh, person. I'm assuming he was African-American. Um, and they might have been in their uh, mid, early to mid-20s. Um, and they basically said, um, you know, um, we support Trump because, and because he's a strong man, um, uh, because we know where he stands, um, you know, because he stands up for things. Um, that was one thing I heard. So this, 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 their notion or the prevailing notion in too many communities about what makes for a strong man um, was very, very present there. Um, in other places, uh, you know, with some of these young black and brown uh, people, again, mainly, uh, mainly uh, uh, young men, 
um, the, the issue was that, well, nothing's going to change for me. Uh, it's going to be the same next year and the year after that, no matter who's president. Uh, and there's some element of truth to that. Um, you know, some of it is the uh, nation and the governments, and if not the city and the state's faults and responsibilities. Some of that is the way in which uh, people get socialized and raised. Um, it's fascinating. And then, you know, to sort of uh, run in a couple of young people who clearly uh, were uh, carrying and basically said, I don't need anybody, any of these folks. Um, they're all racist. And uh, I'll settle my uh, I'll settle my issues for myself. Um, and, um, you know, and, and including one young man who said, you know, if the police kills one of mine, I'm going to kill one of theirs and I have my stuff right here to do it. Um, so it's, uh, you know, it, people are hurting. Um, people are lost, uh, kind of floundering for where they fit in the society. And, um, you know, I want to commit myself um, uh, as the Biden administration uh, takes office um, to, to staying in solidarity with those folks. Um, because um, I think we have to answer their questions. I think on the same side, perhaps to, um, you know, poor and struggling working class uh, white people, um, uh, there needs to be much more of an effort for us to really understand uh, the economic impact there uh, and to try to find ways to engage, including calling, you know, calling racism for what it is. Uh, I mean, it's violent and it's destructive as we all know, but it's also a, uh, it's also a, um, an escape. It's, a, it's an avoidance, it's a denial. Uh, it's a way to feel superior when you really have nothing at least materially to feel superior about. Um, and I think we need to call it, but we need to find ways to address uh, the, the issues uh, there as well. Um, so I was, uh, I knew these things were there. Uh, they, were, they were always hard to see. I, I will say that my partner spouse, Michael, was in uh, Milford, PA, canvassing, and uh, he saw a lot of that anger from uh, working class white Americans. Uh, who yelled at him, screamed at him, screamed at him and other, at others, as some of you know, at one point, screaming over and over again that you all and you, and you all are nothing but a bunch of commie, pedophile, loving faggots, which they said over and over and over again uh, in the town of Milford as, uh, as people were poll watching uh, and canvassing. So we've got a work cut out for us. It's, uh, you know, you, hit, you know, you know, it's there. Uh, but when you experience it, it, uh, it, it really brings it home. And uh, as with Reverend Barber and others, we just really need to stay in solidarity with people who are at the margins and see if we can address some of their issues. Kelly, any thoughts on this? Mm, well, thanks, Sarene. Yeah, I think that uh, what's surprising uh, to me uh, most and through the evening is that for a moment I was that I was surprised. I know. It is completely unsurprising. And it should be completely unsurprising to uh, our nation and to people of faith. We have not done the work. We have not done the work to 
uh, understand how, look, here's the thing, that, it, it's, that we have as a nation held a certain culture for a long time. Uh, and what we've seen happen in our nation over the last four years is a sort of culmination of that. We've held that. Uh, this is, as I've said, that culture of sin. And, and one can say, okay, so you were talking about that abstractly. But here's the thing. It, 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 we understand it. We don't understand it abstractly. We understand understand it, how it lives itself out, right? As it, as it lives itself out in our lives and, and in history. And until you deal with it, all it's going to do is produce itself. You know, Fred said that, we're that white supremacy or racism is violent. It is. Sin is violent. And, you know, anything that betrays the humanity of another is violent. And violence produces violence. And we all get trapped in a culture of violence in different ways, right? And so I, so it's completely, it, I'm sorry to say, <laughs> Serene, that it is completely unsurprising, right? And, and that we are surprised is stunning uh, uh, and is a further indictment to who we are and who we have allowed ourselves, how we have allowed ourselves to sit in the comfort of a white supremacist culture of sin. And we have, we have. When so Fred is right in this regard. The only way out of it is that we it begins, it always begins with those who've been most impacted by that sin. That's the way to a more just future, to those people who have not been able to sit comfortably in it. And we have sat comfortably in it. We have had benefits from it. Our faith communities have sat comfortably in it. But there are others who have been on the underside of this evil and they haven't sat comfortably in it. And so it seems to me that, however, I, you know, all of the political machinations and all of the things that we can indeed began to say this happened and that happened and we didn't listen to that constituency, we didn't listen to this constituency. Uh, I think all of that, we can do all of that. But if we only do that, we're going to be this, we'll, we'll be in this moment again and again, we won't get out of this moment. And so we got to do more than that. And, and, and I think that that is where the faith community and people who call themselves faith leaders come into play. There's a role for all of us. The, the political analysts got to do their thing. But we can't get caught in that. That's not, we can't get caught. That's not who we're supposed to be. And that's not what we're supposed to do. Let them do that. But we've got to do something different. And we've got to, call, we've got to hold up a different moral vision. We've got to widen the moral imagination and our imagination for justice. And I'm sorry, we haven't done that or we wouldn't find ourselves in this 21st century moment. And so so I'm I'm uh I am stunningly unsurprised and stunningly surprised that there was a moment uh uh that I was shocked and and surprised and I said shame on you. Uh, uh, and so it's, it's completely unsurprising. And there are people who have, have died to this sin and, and we have to continue to respond from the bottom up to that because all of us 
have that we're even having this conversation about surprise indicates that we have comfortably set in the sin. Yes, I have to say that my biggest surprise was that I allowed myself to, for a moment, um, imagine that it would turn out differently. And in fact, it turned out, um, and it is a reflection of, of what this nation is um, and a lot of work to be done, so much work. Uh, Pam, um, and then we're gonna have to, we have about three minutes before we're gonna have to um, uh, turn to Tim for our closing prayer, but Pam, um, give us a good word. Sure. Well, I agree with Kelly that I wasn't surprised. Um, I might, I'm disappointed because I thought it might be a little less stark than it was, uh, but I am not surprised. And part of the reason for that is that I, when I'm not in New York, I'm living in central Pennsylvania, surrounded by Trump supporters. And at the, one of the Black Lives Matter demonstrations that I was at on the square in Gettysburg, there were the white self-appointed militia toting machine guns around among us and threatening us. Um, so I'm not surprised. I think what, go, what is going on psychologically goes right back to the founding of Virginia when the divide and conquer strategy happened between white indentured servants and African servants, slaves, where there was a promise made to the white indentured servants that they could work off their debt and become like the people who were in power who were white. And I think the same thing is going on that when Trump says, make America great again, what he's really saying is we're gonna make you great again. So if you're threatened by women's power, if you're threatened by diversity, if you're threatened by people taking your jobs from other countries, we're going to restore all that to you because you're white. Even though you're poor and working class, you will have the dignity of white supremacy. And I think that that is a powerful semi-subliminal message that goes to people who do not listen to reason or arguments. It goes to their sense of having been I won't say the Freudian word. I think it goes to their sense of having um, been displaced and put down and that that resentment fuels so much that the lies just feed that fueling of resentment. And that is a big part of why the demographics who vote for Trump do. And then I also think there's a religious have about abortion because I think we do lose some of the Latinx vote, including Latina women who are either evangelical or Catholic who, for whom the, the abortion issue is the litmus test. And that is the only thing that they're really voting on. And they're saying, ignore this horrible man, but we want to vote on the basis of what we believe are our values. You put those things together and you get a witch's brew of resentment and a cauldron of unreason, but people will give their conscience over to the leader and then all kinds of hate gets unleashed. So I think we need to do a better job somehow of supporting people who feel resentful without setting back the clock and restoring white supremacy. 
what is a way that we can restore the dignity of Americans without restoring white supremacy? Because for so many, their dignity depends on their white supremacy. So Serene, can I just say one quick thing? And I know we need to get to Tim and that is let's not forget that Joe Biden and Kamala Harris have won this race and it's gonna present us some opportunities to address the kind of issues that everyone has raised and, uh, and, 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 and let's take advantage of that opportunity. And let's add to that, that we've seen some shifts in the Senate too. So um, mm -hmm. there, are, there are some shifts happening that, that, uh, that give us opportunities. Thank you, Fred. And um, I just wanna um, say that we have gotten some good questions. I'm gonna read them and I'm gonna ask everyone to join us again after chapel where we're going to have a community meeting open to um, students, faculty, administration, and to the whole union community for us to continue this conversation. Question, um, how might progressive Christians effectively reach out to conservative Christians um, and have a theological discussion uh, about God's justice? Um, second question, how do you handle ongoing relationships with family and friends who see the world so differently? Another question, how do you sustain yourself in the midst of what is happening? And um, a last question, how do we engage people who, because of this election, are being, gonna become so disillusioned with government uh, that they simply step out of it? Um, great questions, we're gonna come back and talk about those. Um, I wanna thank uh, Fred, Kelly, and Pam um, for your thoughts. Thank you, Sandra, for opening us with prayer. And Tim, our wonderful preaching professor, will you please, please um, <laughs> pull us together in conclusion of this moment in the day uh, with prayer. Absolutely. It's an honor to be here as always and uh, continue to um, celebrate uh, mutedly uh, and lament at the same time. So uh, if you would uh, bow with me. Uh, great God, we have beyond mixed emotions in this moment, even if we can cautiously, optimistically believe uh, that indeed there's been a change and there's still so much uh, that causes us pain, so much God to lament, so much God to um, cause us dis-ease. As a people who believe that Thurman was right, that we uh, are to be there and the God you are, uh, one who has uh, who is on the side of those that have their backs up against the wall. The God that we believe that you are with those that, that are oppressed, we are saddened by the many numbers that say otherwise. And so God, what I've turned to uh, this morning are indeed uh, apocalyptic texts and God to help make sense of what feels like the end of something. Uh, not to be dramatic, God, but certainly to recognize that there are some things that are dying, there are some things that are changing and certainly there's much that needs to be uh, revealed. And so uh, we have not just heard of wars and rumors of wars, but this election season has been a war season. Now uh, we have seen nations within a nation rise up against each other. We've seen kingdoms within kingdoms rise up against uh, each other. Uh, and indeed we've seen people betrayed. Uh, we've seen a false prophet and many false prophets rise. Uh, an attempt to uh, influence and persuade others. Um, and so we believe that there is still good news that presses up against uh, all of this pain, uh, all of this frustration, all of this anxiety. 
And so I, I pray, God, that we look towards that good news, that we proclaim it, that we take on that prophetic mantle uh, that we've heard about, discussed already this morning. I pray, God, that we would take that on and that we would use it to speak back against that which we continue to see. And God, I'd be remiss if I didn't at least recognize and lament the fact that in a time where we need each other, we want to lean upon each other, we want to hold hands and to pray and to hug and to cry, uh, that we still find ourselves in the midst of a pandemic that prevents so much of what we normally would turn to. And so God, as much as we are not surprised by what has happened, certainly this is still an unusual and unprecedented time. And so in this conflation of so many things, uh, we rest in you still and we rest in each other. And it is the hope that we look towards that pulls us up out of the muck and the mire of this moment. And so great God, it's in your name and in and with the love of all of those that have gathered, we pray, amen and amen. Amen, amen, thank you. Thank you for that prayer. And I'll recall the words of Cornell West on Friday at Union when he said, we are on a love train and that train is moving forward. And I'll recall the words of Reverend Barber on Thursday who said, we are called as people of faith to move forward even in moments like this with joy. So jump on that love train and let's feel some joy and uh, um, let's step into the fray that we face. Amen and thank you for being with us.